Hello and welcome to a special edition of Asia Matters. We are recording this episode of the podcast on the sidelines of the 2020 Association for Asian Studies Annual Conference, which, you'll be unsurprised to hear, is being held mostly remotely this year. My name is Andrew People. Well, for this session, we'll be discussing the dual crises facing South Asia. COVID-19 has had a hugely harmful impact on the countries that make up this region, which include the likes of India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and other major nations. The World Bank expects the region's economic growth this year to be its lowest for four decades. This, of course, comes as South Asian nations are also battling against climate change and heavy pollution in many of the cities there. Well, to discuss these issues, I'm joined by two distinguished guests. Mushfiq Mubarak is a professor of economics at Yale University, and he has been involved in helping Bangladesh's response to the pandemic. And Yamini Ayar, president and chief executive of the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. Her work has focused a great deal on social policy and development. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, I wanted to dive in first, and maybe Mushfik, if you could answer this first of all, and I'll let Yamini come in as to as well. Um, obviously, we had that pretty dire prediction from the World Bank back in April. We're a few months on now. How is the data looking? How have the outcomes been for the region's economy? Have they been worse than predicted or better? How, how are things looking? I think one easy way to answer the question but it, is that it's been worse than predicted just because I think the prediction itself was overtly rosy that came from the government and it was subject to a lot of discussion in the policy circles inside the country as well as you know with multilateral um, part, development partners right um, and and then you know the projection from uh, associated with the with the budget this year uh, was very rosy that it would have been sort of status quo no, no change and clearly that's not true um now uh, that's not true because you know after a lockdown uh we, we had sort of uneven enforcement of the lockdown but there was a lot of um pause on, in economic activity and the other thing i'll, I'll say here is that you know uh, not to extend the conversation about predictions for too long is because we're all sort of still flying blind and there's a lot of uncertainty and uh, so I'll just give you some examples of that uncertainty, right? So, so you know, if you have an agricultural economy and large parts of our rural areas still are, right? Then, um, you know, then the economic outcomes are quite seasonal, right? It depends on when the harvest is, when the planting is, when people have jobs, and then there are lean periods as well, right? And so if you observe some economic outcome during sort of a post-harvest period, that doesn't necessarily tell you about what the situation might be in the lean period. And that's something that we've been tracking in the data, both in Bangladesh and in Nepal. And there's very clear patterns of seasonality. And we've been lucky that COVID hit during a relatively good sort of post-harvest period where people still had green stocks, right? And another issue um, that makes the uncertainty really fundamental is that in, uh, Agrarian or even non-agrarian economies, you know, people make investments that pay off in the long run. So just as an example, people buy fertilizer and that only shows up with in terms of agricultural productivity in the next season, right? And if the crisis uh, and the associated increases in deprivation and basic deprivation like in food and hunger, right, is forcing people into just do desperate things and not make long-term investments, that's going to hurt us in the long run. 
Yamini, from your perspective in India, which countries have you seen being most hardest hit by, by the pandemic so far, in particular India, of course? How much of an impact has it had there so far? Well, we are recording uh, today when the government has put out its first official quarterly GDP data figures. And so there's no need for predictions anymore. It's there for everybody to see. We were expecting it to be bad and things are bad. The economy has contracted by 23.9%. Uh, we are now amongst the worst hit of uh, emerging markets. And uh, we are worst hit in very obvious parts of our economy uh, that I think one could predict would be affected by the combination of a health crisis and the, uh, the lockdowns. So it's the services sectors, construction, uh, manufacturing. Uh, the only sector that seems to have marginally bucked the trend is agriculture that's seen a 3.4% increase this quarter. Um, quarterly figures should be just treated as they are indicators. They are in no way anything else. Uh, but I think they are ought to be a good wake-up call uh, that there is no question that once the lockdown was lifted, the economy would on its own limp back uh, into, uh, into some, some sort of recovery. It needs serious support. Uh, the Indian context is unique also, I think, for two other reasons. One, uh, prior to to the lockdown and COVID becoming uh, the crisis that it did, uh, the Indian economy was going through a fairly serious slowdown in, in yeah. and of itself. We were not quite in recession, uh, but we had seen the slowest growth since um, uh, uh, over the pre over the previous fiscal year since we I think opened up back in the 1990s or well certainly since the early 2000s um, and uh, that uh, in particular also coincided with a drop in employment figures with a significant drop in consumption uh, so so things weren't good um, private investment both uh, household uh, uh, household consumption as well as private investment for uh, the economy uh, for corporates had also was also also going through an all-time low. So we were in a bad place to begin with, and there were lots of key structural factors that were beginning to uh, make themselves visible as constraints to future growth that needed to be addressed. It's in that context that COVID hit. We went in for what was uh, widely described as the world's harshest lockdown very, very early in the pandemic unfolding. In fact, it's quite ironic that we are now, I think, third largest uh, US, Brazil, and India now are the third largest, India comes third uh, in terms of the number of cases. When we, when we went into lockdown, we were at a very, very low number. Uh, and we have unlocked the economy uh, because I think we've realized, our policymakers have realized that the economy itself was suffering so much that um, further lockdowns were going to be very difficult. So it's a grim scenario. Uh, employment is down of, uh, uh, unsurprisingly. What's particularly important here is the trends in employment are uh, complicated, uh, partly because we've had a relatively better uh, agriculture season this year, and because we have better social safety net structures for rural India, um, we've been able to at least ensure that to some degree, rural employment is not suffering as much uh, once we started opening up. Uh, however, urban salaried employment now is suffering quite significantly. Job losses there are significant. I think those were... Um, 
uh, urban salaried workers were able to ride out the early tide, but now, uh, as it appears quite clear that the economy is not recovering anytime quickly or soon, uh, uh, salaried workers too are losing their jobs. So we have to think very deep and hard now about how we repair the economy yeah. and start moving on the path to recovery. So India was not going into the pandemic in in the best of shape. We're obviously talking today about South Asia as a region, but the countries within that region uh, obviously vary greatly in terms of size and population and systems of governance. Um, What, though, have been some of the common issues that countries across the region have faced, do you think? Maybe, Yamini, if I could turn to you first on that. So I think one uh, critical issue that we've all faced and confronted is the fact that our economies have a large size of informal workers uh, that uh, account for a significant proportion of uh, our our labor force. And uh, the uh, lockdown uh, severely impacted informal workers. And there's also been a very large movement of workers from rural to urban. So in the context of the lockdown, we also saw this movement back, sort of what we call reverse migration, as people uh, went home uh, once they lost jobs, which also meant that the balance of uh, where safety nets have to be provided, where workers become vulnerable, was in some ways upended uh, in all our countries in uh, in similar ways. I would say, however, that uh, certainly if you compare Bangladesh and India, which are the two countries you're speaking with today, uh, Bangladesh is in in some ways in a better position when it comes to its overall social development indicators, uh, Mm. particularly public health. Um, We don't acknowledge it enough in India uh, uh, because uh, we've always considered ourselves as the the sort of the large big brother of the South Asian region. Uh, And I think to our own parents, Uh, because when it comes to social development indicators, our neighbors, and in particular Bangladesh, does much better. It has a more robust local governance system. It has a more robust public health system and a better way at reaching um, uh, populations uh, that are poor and uh, spread out in uh, in far places of the country. In India, we we are overall spend on uh, public health has consistently been extremely low, less than 2% of GDP. We are lower than any comparable country and certainly compared with Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, and and some other countries in the region. Overall, on human capital index, uh, the World Bank's human capital index, India uh, falls pretty low uh, compared with Bangladesh. Uh, So so in a way, India going into a severe lockdown was also a um, a consequence of a very broken public health system in which there's very little public trust, both elite and amongst the poor who are mostly dependent on the public health system, or at any rate, uh, for whom the public health system in in times of pandemics uh, matters significantly. And so we in India had a very quick, and I believe, uh, I think, uh, a poorly thought through elite consensus that the only way that we could uh, survive uh, the the negative consequences of of the crisis on public health was by going into into a lockdown and trying to contain the virus as best as possible without thinking carefully through the consequences of that on the lives of all of those uh, whom, uh, frankly, the virus was going to affect as as harshly as the lockdown was and did. Um, Mm. And I think there again, there are some similarities within um, uh, 
uh, within the region about how these elite consensus were formed. I think the politics of it is quite interesting and intriguing. Poor country, uh, developing countries like ours actually have a much better handle on infectious diseases than Western countries who I think were dealing with this in new ways. Uh, right. But in India, the lack of trust in our public health system created the consensus it did. I think uh, Mushfiq and other will be able to speak more to what happened, how this unfolded in Bangladesh. Uh, but I think the long-term uh, ability to manage the disease and uh, overall ensure that the public health systems realign to managing COVID, because this is not going away and there's also going to be challenges around vaccines and so on and, and, and its distribution and so on in the near in the long-term future. I think that uh, at least my understanding of Bangladesh gives me a little bit more confidence in Bangladesh's ability to do it than India as a whole. Of course, India is a large country. Many states have responded. Variations. And yes. There's a lot of variation. So there's a lot of heterogeneity here for sure. Um, but at a level of generalization, I think um, these yeah. are two I want to make. Moshe, does that... Sorry, yeah, carry on, Yemeni. No, please. Okay, there's one last thing I wanted to add in here, which is, you know, one of, one of the things we are beginning to learn in the Indian context is as we develop ways of better surveying um, and uh, finding the disease as it spreads across the country, the degree of trust in the health system makes a big difference to, I think, the, uh, the willingness of people to report disease. Uh, mm. So, so uh, you know, uh, the demand for testing, the demand for uh, coming into the government health system, because one of the things with COVID is that once you go in for a test, the way the sort of surveillance structure has been developed and the use of technology has been designed in a way that sort of automatically puts you into the government system very quickly. And, you know, I think this is um, this is not uh, empirically proven. It's 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 more a, a hypothesis based on what I'm learning from the ground that the lack of trust is potentially causing underreporting in the disease in India. Right. Yeah. Uh, again, I think here the strength of the public health system in Bangladesh may tell a slightly different story. Moshvi, can you give us your perspective then? Does that ring true that there's perhaps a higher level of trust in the public health system in a country like Bangladesh? Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on a lot of the excellent um, themes that uh, Yemeni had started on. Uh, and I'll, I have actually been taking notes on what she's been saying, so I'll try and address all of the questions she's brought up. And I think one uh, bottom line message here is that maybe the grass is always greener on the other side. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. so I would, I, you know, I'm going to unfortunately have to temper Yemeni's enthusiasm about Bangladesh a little bit. Um, so, so I'll start with, you know, her first point about informal sector, right? That's that's uh, common across all of South Asia, in Nepal, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, uh, the size of the informed sector is quite large, right? And why does that matter? Because, as I mean, as it's obvious, this is both a public health and an economic crisis. And if, if it's an economic crisis, then you need to reach people with social protection in order to help them um, cope with the crisis, right? And if people are in the informal sector, which, you know, the definition varies uh, according to different scholars, but the common theme is going to be that those are the people who are going to be difficult to reach, right? Because they're not part of some, say, tax system. They're not part of some, you know, regulatory uh, record-keeping system, etc. Right? And so, if they're going to be tough to reach, right, that makes it, of course, that creates more suffering, right? That a lot, that hampers our ability to deal with the crisis on the in economic terms, but it also hampers our ability to deal with the public health dimension of the crisis. 
And the reason is that these two things are interlinked. You know, there's been a lot of commentary in the press, both in the developed and developing world about this lives versus livelihoods debate, what yep. should we prioritize? And I think that's just a false dichotomy. Right? There's, right. No, there's no lives versus livelihoods. It's that if, if people are, um, are, are stuck at home, can't work, that also is a risk to their life, especially in countries that are poor, especially when they are informal sectors. And therefore, it's not that people can rely on social insurance or like mm -hmm. a lot of savings, mm -hmm. right? And on the other hand, if um, their economic, um, if, if their economic, uh, you know, crisis is not uh, addressed, then it becomes very difficult for people to um, to abide by, say, social distancing guidelines and do the things that are necessary. Right? They're going to take risks, you know, because if their kids are hungry, they're going to force force into that. Right? So I think this is one area in which uh, India at least started out at a higher step on the ladder than we did in Bangladesh. Okay, which is that thanks to the infrastructure investments that were made over the past decade, say, in other systems, Jantan accounts, etc it became more easy to reach people. Whereas in Bangladesh, we, didn't, we don't have any way to reach uh, the poor easily and, and quickly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in some sense, because it's a smaller country, densely populated, it should have been easier for us to reach people. But I think even relative to India, it's been more of a challenge. Okay? And, um, and so what, you know, what are the other common challenges I've seen in Bangladesh and in other developing countries? The absence of data, the absence of infrastructure to deal with crisis like this is really coming to haunt us right now, and which is why I'm talking about this, uh, you know, the infrastructure that India had for reasons unrelated to COVID had, had invested in. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, Yamini mentioned migrant workers. Uh, you know, here I'll say, you know, in India, the early stories were about internal migrants moving from urban back to rural areas, and therefore also probably carrying the disease with them, right? So the government's sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, lockdown from today and not thinking through, you know, how is it that people earn a livelihood, where their families are, where, where is where they are, that was a huge mistake in India, right? But we have that challenge in Bangladesh as well, lots of internal migrants, and like India, lots of international migrants as well. Yeah. And this is a case where people are being sent back from Italy, from Singapore, et cetera, places where the disease was. So that's how the disease actually got introduced to the country, that's right. Bad. But we also have to worry about the fact that remittances, which is a large share of our economy, right? It's a inf not a trivial share of our economy, that's also at risk. Right. And um, yeah, and then on you know the planning comments that uh Yamini made. Okay. Now here's a case where even the most developed economies on earth, and like take the United States, for example, which has the by by a long shot, right? The greatest um, uh, sort of existing expertise on dealing with health crises and pandemics, right? And and you know, and the world was hoping for for that expertise to sort of take a lead and guiding us through, right? And that infrastructure completely fell apart. It just didn't work for the United States, and therefore it didn't work for the rest of the world either. UK, Sweden, right? Other developed countries were all, you know, as you as you as you can tell from the widely diverging approaches, right? Both across countries and even across months within the same country, right? Mm. That people are very confused, right? 
And, you know, add to that in India, Bangladesh, that not only does the same type of expertise and centers for disease control, et cetera, which, you know, doesn't exist, right? But on top of that, we have all these other challenges, including economic challenges. We can't just, like in Bangladesh, you know, you can't just look at last year's tax returns and say, okay, oh, here are the people right. who are less than X and less than right. money, right? Then we can we can do a, either mail them a check or, or do a bank transfer, right? So just the data is lacking. Exactly, and right. uh, so that's that's just been a great challenge. And so, so finally, I'm just trying to cover all of the excellent points that Yamini raised. Right. So the other point that she made was about uh, very nice comments and accurate comments about social development indicators in Bangladesh, which is a nice surprise for us in the sense that Bangladesh is poorer than India on average in terms of GDP per capita. It's certainly poorer than many states in India, especially in the West and the North. Right. Uh, oh, sorry, I should say in the South. And, and in spite of the fact that you know, GDP per capita in some states in India are two or three times as high, the social indicators and socioeconomic indicators such as like, let's say, you know, maternal mortality, childhood mortality, vaccination rates, uh, et cetera, they look much better in Bangladesh. Okay? So now that of course, maybe hopefully gives us some protection relative to uh, in India given a certain income level, right? But we have to understand where that comes from. Why is it that it's so much better, right? Is it that is it an achievement of the government? So most people who've studied this intensively think not. It's because we have another set of institutions in place, so non-government actors, uh, who have played really important roles here, right? So it's been very uh, like because of the extensive network of NGOs uh, in Bangladesh. So just to give one example, BRAC, which is the world's largest NGO, started in Bangladesh, and it's the most extensive presence there they can reach every single district very easily the same way that a government, in, you know, uh, sort of the extent of a government network can, right? And so that's, those are things that come into play, like in terms of just communicating with people, spreading information, having the trust necessary to get people to believe, you know, the official messages that are coming out of the, uh, about the virus. But still in pockets, there is still the type of challenge that Yamini is talking about, like in Cox's Bazaar, where the Rohingya refugees are there's a lot of mistrust about what is happening, right? And we see the change differences there relative to the rest of the country. So this, this issue of trust um, in governments and in institutions is, is so important. It's fascinating what you, you both said there. Um, I'm also interested in this idea that the sort of lack of leadership from countries like the US that we'd normally turn to in, in uh, situations like this has been uh, you know, has had such a knock-on effect on, on countries um, like Bangladesh. What then, I mean, have countries within the South Asian region, have they been able to put aside political differences and cooperate at all and share experiences and sort of form common approaches? Or has it been quite localized, the, the different responses uh, within the region to the pandemic? Localized is a nice word. I'm sorry, I'll yeah. go first because I yeah. um, disjointed is another word to yeah. uh, explain that. Uh, yeah, I I would say we haven't had um, we we haven't had the level of cooperation, information sharing that we might hope for. Um, now, I, I, you also can't blame people too much because everyone's like, you know, they were starting in say late March, early April. It was like getting a huge punch to our stomachs, right? Uh, and suddenly every, everybody's hitting, everybody's being hit at the same time. 
by this completely new unknown thing that we haven't experienced for a hundred years or more, or essentially in modern nation states, we've never experienced, right? And, and so I'm not surprised that the reaction of each, each and every country was, okay, what do we do about this in our country, right? How do we, and it's become a political issue as well, right? Unfortunately, even things like, you know, whether to wear masks, right? That's been politicized, right? So, so governments have had uh, really sort of complex set of problems to deal with. There's the economic issue, there's the public health issue. How do we develop the public health ex expertise? And, and here, um, I'm not surprised that like the, the thing that hasn't um, come to their mind, the forefront of their mind is sort of cooperation across countries, right? So, and, and here again, um, you know, what type of cooperation do we need? I think Bangladesh right now needs the coordination cooperation with other countries it's most strongly linked to through migration networks, through remittances, et cetera, right? And the reason is that's the way in which the virus spreads, right? And if those other countries shut the borders to Bangladeshi immigrants, right, that's going to be a great greatest risk. So if, if I were to advise our foreign ministry on what to... Um, uh, what to focus on, right? It wouldn't be coordination with other South Asian countries. It would be coordination with uh, the destinations for migrants. The sort of countries that uh, people from Bangladesh go to work in, that's okay. what you'd be yeah. pushing for. And, and Yamini, as I understand it, in India, it's not so much cooperation across border that's been lacking, and maybe that has too, but also coordination within India itself, between the central government and the states uh, within India. Can you explain why that sort of complicated the response to COVID? Sure. So uh, before I do that, just two, two quick things. One, you know, I, I, as Mushfiq said, uh, the cooperation across borders has been lacking. Uh, there was some initial momentum in March uh, with, led by our prime minister who had a sort of SAC meeting and there was some discussion about uh, possibilities of coordination and cooperation, but uh, not much has come uh, there. And I think one part of that story, there's many things, and as Mushfiq rightly says, we've also... Countries have just been busy dealing with their own uh, context and and uh, things uh, have been quite complex in terms of the politics of our bilateral relationships uh, across the board, as uh, which makes things harder. Um, but but I also think that India hasn't really applied itself to thinking hard enough about a vision of what it can do if it were to take leadership within the region. Um, yeah. On this, it's an opportunity that we should, I think, tap uh, most. Most importantly, because uh, India, uh, I think the South Asia needs a new vocabulary for regionalism. I think it's important and crucial for all of us as individual countries, uh, given the particular geographic location, the context of uh, geopolitics more broadly. We need to be able to bandy together. But give, a, but the, the only way to do that is for us to have a new vocabulary to to engage with uh, each other as as countries um, and and new ways of uh, new fora to engage as well, since a lot of the old fora are no longer politically viable spaces to engage with. Um, and, and so I think it's very important for India to start taking this seriously, uh, and I'm hopeful, uh, there's eternal hope, uh, that it will uh, and, and take some leadership there. Uh, another quick comment, uh, you know, um, Moshfiq talked about JAM, the which is our sort of, uh, it, it's a 
a financial inclusion program combined with using technology to reach a large number of people. The M stands for mobile. And it's been, uh, uh, you know, it, it's sort of the, 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 the technology infrastructure that we've laid out to cut through layers of bureaucracy and, and enable the state to write, literally reach somebody's bank account uh, at the click of a button. But um, it's not been as straightforward as, uh, as one thinks uh, for two reasons. One, like you, you said, the data issue is really important and I should have mentioned it uh, earlier. Uh, one, the biggest challenge India has had in terms of dealing with these migrant workers who are trying to, or workers in general, people moving from urban to rural areas, is that we actually don't have any data system. And the, uh, the excuse that was given by our national government not to be generous in terms of the kind of income support they could give to these migrant workers was that we simply don't know where they are, we can't find them, so how do we move cash to them? I think if they tried hard enough, they could have found, found them, but, that's, uh, but, but that was the call. So we've never actually built these data systems, so jam doesn't help if you're not in the system. The second thing was that a large number of women uh, in whose name the bank accounts are opened, uh, most uh, women below the poverty line also are not yet in that net. Um, right. And uh, in fact, the big call, uh, same also for our public distribution system. So the big call that many, including me, uh, have been making is that the only way that we can move uh, uh, and provide income support in the current moment of the of the economic crisis is by moving towards universal food support security, by enhancing the rural employment guarantee program that has a better way of reaching people, and then building systems for uh, using things like jam and and others for uh, for the urban worker uh, and that's not quite yet been done so we do have some semblance of an infrastructure it works only if the enabling conditions are in place and and the enabling conditions haven't yet been put in place for good robust social safety nets in india either uh, to your larger question about interstate coordination that's been a very very crucial fault line uh, in india throughout this pandemic uh, within our uh, so in India is a very, India has been described often as a centralized federal structure yeah. um, where, uh, you know, the central government has uh, overwhelming fiscal and monetary powers, uh, whereas the expenditure powers rest firmly within the states. Uh, public health is a state subject uh, within the architecture of the constitution. Uh, so essentially states were at the, have been at the front line of building the response to COVID in the sense that uh, the entire public health infrastructure is sort of governed by states, uh, as well as the ability to deliver social protection and income support and so on. Um, but they don't have the ability and the resources uh, to make up for the revenue losses uh, consequent to the contraction in the economy. This was to be the role of the center. Um, and we are in fact uh, uh, right now in a very crucial stage because the goods and services taxes that state governments had sort of come together towards creating a national taxation structure, uh, the central government has uh, is trying to figure out how it can renege on its commitment to state governments in terms of providing for compensation uh, related to that. So uh, what's happened is that we've had a very important fiscal tussle as the central government has tried to, uh, has not been generous enough and not used its fiscal powers to give money to states. Um, it's instead chosen to use its limited fiscal powers to centralize the kind of economic uh, recovery packages that have been provided for, um, leaving states with relatively little wiggle room for innovation and doing things in ways that make sense to them. 
Having said that, though, uh, the other crucial crisis is that, you know, we are also a national market. Uh, so as we went into lockdown, one of the most crucial challenges we faced was that states for the first time, I think, in independent India's history, also now were closing borders. So there was mm. this big challenge of how do you manage supply chains? It really came home to me when uh, in, in April, which is the peak procurement season uh, in, 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 in parts, particularly in many parts of North India, uh, one our big uh, wheat uh, and rice growing state, the state of Punjab, uh, encountered a very critical problem with this procurement. They'd mobilized everything. They found a way of getting this done, except that the gunny sacks uh, that are the jute that is needed for the gunny sacks uh, to get uh, right. uh, the farmer, that was being made in the jute textile mills in West Bengal. And West Bengal had shut down its jute textile mills uh, during the peak of the lockdown. So chief ministers were left sort of wondering what to do writing letters to each other, writing appeals to the prime minister to see if there could be some central government intervention, which I, I'm, I'm telling you this because it kind of brings home the importance of interstate coordination yeah. in the context of this kind of pandemic and more generally for a large uh, country, uh, which is a union of states that has been missing. Uh, and absent that coordination, we saw moments in these last six months where the central government has uh, overriding powers, imposed lockdowns, a chosen uh, which way it wants to go in terms of how it provides economic packages, leaving little flexibility to states who are really at the front lines on the one hand. On the other, we've lacked that kind of interstate coordination that has been really necessary in the, in the, in the context of a nationalized supply, uh, uh, you know, goods and services uh, supply, uh, supply chain structure, uh, all of which have uh, been, uh, you know, caused a lot of hurdles along the way. One yeah. of the challenges, even with the migrant workers, is precisely this, the workers belong to a particular state but move to another. Now, who's responsible for getting yeah. them home? Who's responsible for their income support? So we've been deeply lacking coordination too. Right yeah. now, we are uh, again, uh, you know, at a place where states are making decisions about when to go into lockdown or not to go into lockdown as the disease unfolds. We are seeing that this is a disease that travels in localized yeah. ways from state to state, cluster to cluster, requiring local governments. In fact, it's not even about states. It's about the third tier of the local government uh, to really take uh, uh, take uh, take responsibility. Um, and there, I think the fact that we are a centralized administrative and fiscal system has come, uh, come in uh, uh, sharp focus as a constraint to our ability to respond well and effectively. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Mushfiq, can I ask you a little bit about the detail of the response uh, in, in Bangladesh? Um, Obviously, you've both touched upon this issue of migrant workers and lack of data and the sort of complicating factors that make it hard to get aid and money and support to individuals. Um, has that meant then in turn that you, you know, the government has had pressure to sort of support particular industries, say, for example, in Bangladesh, to support the garment making industry, uh, you know, has the response been to support particular companies rather than individuals? Uh, has that been one of the debates that's taken place? Um, yeah, and uh, okay, so I'll, I'll get to that. And I just, you know, while Yamini was talking, I was talking, you know, for your previous question about coordination, uh, we're also working in Nepal. And I just wanted yeah. to give you a sense of like why the, in, you know, coordination is necessary, especially when 
two regions or countries are interlinked their pre-existing linkages, economic linkages. So in the case of Nepal, the border between India and Nepal is a lot more open, like for labor movement, for example, than it is for India versus Bangladesh. And this is why I think the coordination between India and Bangladesh is much less necessary than, say, Nepal's to India's. And so very quickly what happened in Nepal was as soon as India imposed this lockdown, there were thousands of Nepalis who were working in India who were suddenly sent back, right? And they and they, they came to the borders of the country and they, came, they were coming into a country with relatively low COVID prevalence from a country that at that point probably had relatively high COVID prevalence. So that was there was this movement of people. But beyond that, it's also the case. So we've been collecting data in the Western Terai close to the Indian border and, and a little bit further away, which supplies a lot of these, um, which is our link to uh, the Indian side of the border to various economic linkages. And one of the other things you, we started noticing is that there, there was a lot of informal trade across the border, especially in the border regions, right? By informal trade, I mean, you know, something that other people re refer to as smuggling, right? And so now a lot of fertilizer would come in from, from India. And so prices of goods, food products, fertilizer, where that informal trade was very important in precisely those areas, you're seeing more of an effect on people's lives, right? So, so it's, you know, therefore, you know, when there are pre-existing inter interlinkages, I think, it's really important for countries to figure out how to uh, keep those economic relationships uh, open. Okay, and now on to the next question about uh, Bangladesh uh, and the response in, in Bangladesh. Uh, so there's been, uh, you know, so you need an economic response, you need a public health response, right? We, uh, we already mentioned what the deficiencies in the economic response were. There's, there were also deficiencies in the public health response because we're not, um, you know, we, we, we weren't, expecting this crisis and weren't geared up for it. Um, and so on, Yamini made a, uh, some nice points about like trust and pre-existing institutions that should give us some protection. But with this virus, you also actually need a functioning hospital system, right? You also need like a health system to be able to react to the fact that people are getting sick and dying, right? And that's where, unfortunately, Bangladesh is severely lacking. Uh, say relative to India or even other neighbors. Right? Um, so, so those those things have come into sharp focus now, where people are getting sick, they're dying, and what do they, what what you know? Can we give them adequate medical care? And like that's not something that an NGO can easily solve. That's not just about trust and communication. Right? Okay, and and then on the economic side, your specific question about who's getting the support. The government has announced a bunch of in South Asia. We use the word schemes, right? bunch of schemes to, to support people. Uh, so there's been a scheme for individuals like giving, giving, getting money to poor people, but there have also been schemes to specific sectors. So I wouldn't say companies, right? But sectors. Right. And you right. do see that the sectors that are better organized, such as the, you know, through BGME at the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers Exporters Association, they've been able to, you know, cut through the, uh, the noise, right? And say very loudly and clearly, we need support. Right? And we need support on behalf of our workers. Right? Now, the, some of the optimistic and surprising optimistic things we've seen is that um, yeah, two things. So one is, you know, in the macro data, remittances have not gone down as much as you'd expect uh, or as much as what you're seeing at the, in the micro data collected from households. Right? But a problem there might be that um, that you know, if people are being deported from their destinations, right? It's possible that the reason why remittances aren't falling is that people are liquidating their assets in preparation to get back home, 
and that's mm -hmm. not good for the long term. Right. And on the Garmin side, a surprising thing has been that initially there was like even before the virus arrived in Bangladesh, the Garmin sector was the first one to be hit, right? And that's partly why they, they got a lot of attention. And it, they were the first ones to be hit because the export destinations were hit, right? So if, they, if the orders from US and EU were going down or if the US-EU firms weren't even uh, willing to pay for their existing orders, right? which, which, is, which is a problem early on, that's gonna hit, that was going to hit them really badly. But they've actually had a bit of a rebound. And I think part of the answer here is that while, um, while some demand for some categories of products have gone down, there is now substitute demand for other categories of products like masks and PPEs, et cetera. Right. But these garment factories can be repurposed, right? And we have to think through those opportunities strategically. Fantastic. We sort of built this session as dual crises. We were going to talk a little bit about the environment. We're slightly running out of time uh, to go in depth into that because it's been so fascinating listening to both of you on the response specifically to COVID. But obviously, climate change is, is an issue um, for all the countries in the region as it is uh, globally. We've seen devastating floods uh, in the last few weeks in, in parts of the region, in Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Bhutan, and so on. Um, maybe can I, if I could ask both of you just very quickly to talk about your perspectives on this and you know, the extent to which the fight against the pandemic and against COVID is going to knock governments off their plans to tackle some long-term problems like, like climate change. Um, how much of an issue is that going to be? Is this going to be you know, a big sort of second order impact of, of the pandemic that, that still awaits us? Maybe Yamini, if you go first on that. Sure. So, so here's an interesting thing about India, uh, which is not necessarily related to the climate point, but uh, it's an interesting contrast that's worth uh, reflecting on. Uh, you know, um, we we. We, we have had a series of natural disasters, uh, particularly over the last few years as the climate crisis has got heightened. And it's been quite, uh, we have a national disaster management authority and it's been quite commonplace in public discourse on India in the, you know, when we look at the Indian state to say, we do some things well. And one of the things that we do well is disaster, natural disaster management. And ironically, when, uh, you know, in, uh, in March, uh, it was clear that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the India was entering into an emergency phase. Uh, we use the architecture of the National Disaster Management Authority. The government of India invoked that law and then used that structure to move money and decision-making uh, through the country uh, to, uh, to try and respond to the COVID crisis. Um, and for a little while, uh, there the argument was put forward and put forward, and, and I did too in some of my early writing that, you know, maybe uh, India is good at these one-off events like managing natural disasters. So maybe we'll be able to, you know, mobilize the state to manage uh, the crisis that COVID presents as well. And of course, it turns out that there's a lot more there. Lot more, it's a lot more complicated. In fact, now we are arguing 
arguing that the National Disaster Management Authority is in fact the wrong architecture to deal with COVID because it's a completely different, more complex crisis. Um, having said that, while we were going through COVID, we've also experienced a number of cyclones, floods, as you mentioned, and other natural disasters that are a sharp reminder uh, that the climate crisis is upon us in a significant way and we are not acting well and strong enough. There is some conversation ongoing about whether the renewable energy sector can be part of the sort of uh, re recovery and uh, reform uh, 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 story for India post-COVID. Uh, I think it's a little optimistic at this point, given the kinds of challenges we are confronting. But the one thing that I really deeply do worry about is that, the you know, sort of under the guise of the of the of the uh, of the crisis not quite under the guise but because attention is distracted uh, from the crisis there's been a lot of reversal of some of our environmental laws uh, and also a justification of our environmental impact assessment process and some justification particularly among state governments that are trying to become attractive to private investment and foreign investment you know that we can get through uh, skip through the regulatory loops and hoops that uh, India is is infamous for. Um, and one of the trade-offs is environmental regulation versus quick investment. And I'm very worried that we are going to go down that road uh, in terms of our policy-making decisions, uh, which will have significantly long-term consequences. Sorry, Yamini, we're just running out of time. Mushfiq, can I give you 30 seconds on that, please? Okay, Thank so you. Let me, let me use my limited time to just focus on the interaction effects between um, yeah the climate change, uh, environmental crisis, as well as COVID, right? So just to give a couple of quick examples, that uh, during this period, we also had a cyclone hit Bangladesh, right? And so thankfully, relative to previous cyclones, we do have much better weather prediction systems, et cetera. But that requires us, for us to ad adequately respond to it, it requires us to move people to shelters, right? Where they're designed to be like places where people are tightly packed together. Right? And that can, you know, in a COVID period, in a pandemic period, that can produce additional risks downstream. That's one. Another interaction effect is that, you know, when you have flooding risk, right? So sometimes you might be in a situation where the flood might come and destroy the crops. So we need to get out and do the work quickly of the harvesting or the milling or whatever it is, right? And again, those are places where, you know, absent the flooding risk during a COVID period, we would uh, decide carefully, okay, how do we harvest safely such that we minimize the risk of virus transmission? How do we mill safely, et cetera? And those things go out the window, right? So those are the, like some of the interaction effects that make this, the dual crisis even, even more complicated to deal with, separate from the excellent point you made, Andrew, in your question, which is that climate concerns and that conversation has been sidelined by the fact that we just hit with a different crisis that requires our urgent attention. Well, thank you both of you for that excellent discussion. Sorry that we finished on a downbeat note there, but it's been absolutely fascinating to listen to both of you to talk us through the last few months. There are so many areas, there are so many things that we uh, could have talked more about, but um, thank you for your time and for those insights. Um, thank you from my side too, to my producers, Vincent Nee and Sanan Sharif Dillon for this episode. Um, if you have any feedback, uh, please send it to um, feedback at asiamatterspod.com. Uh, please join us in the future 